Our scripture reading this morning is in Nehemiah chapter 10. Starting in verse 1, it says, On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hekeliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah. And continuing on, there are many, many names we are going to skip over, and we're going down to chapter, sorry, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, the, the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God and to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Cal. Well, I'm going to uh, work through this passage, but to tell you the truth, today I'm actually going to give you just a couple of broad brushstrokes through this passage. We're going to back up next time we get to back to Nehemiah after Easter, and we're going to pick up some more of chapter 10 again and carry on into chapter 11. But today I want to just give you basically two really broad brushstrokes from this passage to help sort of 
work our way through this whole story of Nehemiah as it's come to to this point. So again, we are in the seventh month. We're now at the end of the seventh month of the year, and it's been an active month for these people. There has been a lot happening. This all takes place right after they've completed the building of the wall in an amazing and astounding 52 days, and, uh, and the people have gathered. They've gathered a few times now. This has really been a month of gatherings uh, and reinstituting a lot of the gatherings. So that's what's happening here. And I, I want to take you back a little ways and just sort of catch up again and remind you that uh, there was a point in time where right after the, 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 the completion of the wall, the people gathered under Ezra. They read from the, from the word of the Lord from daybreak until noon. And, and the, you know, roughly six hours, they read the word of God. And it says that all the people listened attentively and they heard the word and they began to praise God together. Right? And it says this, that all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. They, they, they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord in their, with their faces to the ground. And then there's some more after that, some more reading of the word of the Lord. And the Levites then went out among the people and began to instruct them and to clarify them and to explain to them the meaning of those words of the Lord. And as they understood as the word of God sunk into them and as they absorbed its meaning and its truth, um, they, they became overwhelmed with emotion, first with tears and then with joy. And then the whole community then from there enters into this three weeks of feasting, which includes the, the celebration of the Feast of Booths. And all that while, all through that month, they continue to uh, dwell in the Word of God. They continue to be moved and impacted by those words that they're learning. And then after three weeks of feasting, they gather yet again. And, and we start looking at this gathering this week as, as we conclude sort of what happened at the end of that gathering. And uh, certainly this gathering was equally emotional, equally impactful upon the people. We kind of looked at it last week. It was that, that incredible gathering that was marked by confession and humility and fasting and mourning. That's what sprung out of that gathering. And then on that day, you know, they, they, they went from, from daybreak until midday yet again, a quarter of the day it says, they, they, they read the word of God. And they, they centered on this idea that we, we finally, ultimately want to break free from this cycle and reestablish God as the center of our lives the way it was supposed to be, the way the law of Moses instructed us to, the way the word of God instructed us to, to center their community and indeed to center their whole universe around God. They want to make God their everything. And they do that by establishing this agreement, right? This agreement that we read about in chapter 10, at the beginning of chapter 10, it was mentioned for the first time, this, this, this binding agreement, this firm covenant, it says, that is going to be written down and we're actually going to have all of our leaders put their signatures upon it. Uh, and we're going to take a look uh, more at that agreement today, but then also two weeks from now, after Easter, we're going to look at it yet again. 
But before we get into that, before I jump into that, uh, you know what they did at the beginning of this meeting yet again? Well, I, I mentioned it already. They stood up again, and they read the Word of God again. And we're told that, that they read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and it goes on to tell us that after the reading of the Word, they went on and spent another quarter of the day in that confession and in that worship and that prayer before God. Well, you know, here's my first broad brush stroke for you. We've, as we're working our way through this section of Nehemiah, this whole section, we've got to recognize that in all of this, that, that in all that is happening in this amazing point in time for them, through this amazing month, this month of celebration, this month of confession, this month of worship, in that month, a great spiritual awakening and arrival is coming to this community and... And here it is. Here's the prod brushstroke. The reading and the absorbing of the Word of God is at the center of it all. That's the first brushstroke I want us to understand and grasp here. That this whole sort of section of Nehemiah is focused around this event of the reading and the proclaiming and the listening to of the Word of God. And it even sort of is sustained this movement is sustained by the Word of God as, as it consistently and continuously is read throughout the month, sometimes in huge sections that last for like six hours. These people had clearly discovered, or I suppose rediscovered, a fresh passion and a hunger for the Word of God, the very words of God. They, it's like they were eating it up like starved People eat food. They couldn't get enough of it. it. And it was changing them. It was moving them. It was becoming actual life for them. And it was moving them into joy, right? It moved them into tears. It moved them into celebration. It moved them into confession. And it moved them into worship. Those are all the things that we see them being moved into because of the reading and the listening to the Word of God. And all of those things together, all of those movements together of joy, tears, celebration, confession, and worship, you know what that amounts to? That all amounts to revival. <laughs> That's what it amounts to. This revival, this radical recommitment that is breaking out amongst them. But note, we need to note that it all starts with and it centers around the Word of God. That's where it comes from. Passion, desire, and hunger for the Word of God, for God's ways, for God's truth, and for God's teaching. That's where revival starts. Between that prayer, that, 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 or that listening to God, and also prayer in speaking back to God. So scripture and prayer, prayer and scripture, scripture and prayer, prayer and scripture. God talking to us initially, through scripture, and then us responding to him through prayer. That's the beginning point of revival. And for us too, for us too, that's where life and fullness and newness starts with the word of God getting to us, speaking into us, and then us responding to that word of God. Passion and hunger grows for the word of God for the words of God, for the words of Jesus, for, for Scripture, because that's what makes up Scripture. And you'll remember Jesus himself said when, when he was in the wilderness, tempted by the tempter himself, Jesus said that, that we 
do not live by bread alone, right? We don't live by bread alone. Ultimately, life, full life, cannot be found or sustained by simple, physical bread, right? Big Macs and steak dinners aren't enough. They don't provide all that we need. Jesus goes on to say, but instead we must live by and feed on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's got to be part of our nourishment for life. We've got to feast on Jesus and his words and his teachings and eat and drink in a sense, finding our nourishment and sustenance and life in him and in his words. Jesus himself said, he goes on to talk about this quite a bit about himself. He goes on to say that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, streams of living water will flow from him. Water and bread. Jesus often compares himself to this sort of spiritual water and bread, right? Water and bread, which, which were really the things, the, 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 the sustenance, the core sustenance for life for those people in that day. Bread was the main thing they ate, the staple that they ate, and water was where they got their drink from. This is the bread that came down from heaven, Jesus said. Talking about himself. He goes on to say that your fathers, your forefathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. But even in spite of eating that bread that falls from heaven, they died. But he who feeds on this bread, he's talking about himself, will live forever. And the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing, he says. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life to you. Right? Oh, and you see, that's the kind of revival that these people in Nehemiah's day are finding. They're finding in the Word of God just that kind of newness of spiritual life and fulfillment that's been lacking in their lives. And it all starts with this absorbing of the Word of God. They were being consumed with a passion for it. That's why, frankly, they're reading it for hours and hours on end, as though they just can't get enough of it, right? And that's why they're being moved to tears and to joy and to repentance and to celebration all at the same time. It's like all of those mingled feelings are erupting in them at the same time. It's because they're finding this incredible life in these words. They're being penetrated by those words. And they're experiencing God's actual presence, the presence of his very spirit in those words. Right? And it's changing them. Right? It's changing their hearts and changing their minds. It's changing their whole lives. And they just can't get enough of it. So... That's my first broad brush stroke, and I need to finish by saying, how about us? <laughs> right? I mean, everything that we, we preach has got to come back to, how about us? Right? How about us? What are we living on? Truly, what's sustaining life for us? Are we living on the Word? Are we feasting on it? Or, or do we just, and this is my fear sometimes with the church today, are we just sometimes kind of sampling it and snacking on it once in a while? 
Especially I'm afraid and concerned for the church in the Western world. I have concerns. I concern myself in this too. Are, are we trying too much and, ex, and often expecting to, to live on bread alone? Right? And I, and I think that if we look at our world and our culture in the Western world and where we happen to live in, we seem to have accomplished so much. We seem to be able to do and provide so much and get over so many hurdles in life that I truly think it's tempting for us to live on that kind of bread alone. Right? Man-made bread, my own baked bread, my plans, my agendas, my ability to provide for my needs, right? To accomplish the things that I want in life, to become successful according to my terms of success in life. Living off of my half-baked ideas, you know, my half-baked bread. The bread of my own earnings, right? That kind of bread, as in cash bread. My money, my bank account, and my assets. I'm doing pretty good, you know? And I'm feeding off of that primarily. I worry about that. The physical food, the physical passions that we might have, the wants that we can seem to provide for ourselves, our physical accomplishments and trophies, our physical desires and hungers, which again, only really satisfy in a temporal kind of way and soon leave us empty and just kind of wanting more and more. That was good, but now I want more. That was good, but I've become accustomed to it, and now I want more. You know, that, that pay raise was great, but I'm spending it now, and I need more. That house was good, and it fit us for a while, but now I want more. You know, They never really fully satisfied. That's what it's like to live by the earthly bread, bread alone. But there's spiritual needs that can satisfy, even without those material achievements. So are we living by bread mostly, or are we depending and developing great appetites and great desires and great hunger for the Word of God and for the words of Jesus? Are we finding we just can't get enough of it or don't we really have that much time for it? Right? Is, is even small amounts of that kind of almost more than I could manage? You know, again, I, I worry about that for the church these days. And, and I think about you know, things that, that I hear talked about, like attention spans that we have today that are getting shorter and shorter and, and, and you know, sermons can only be so long and services can only be so... What would we do with a six-hour service from dawn until noon? What would we do with that? Would we just be yawning in our chairs and going, ah, that's just way too much? You know, last week, uh, we did chapter 10. I toyed with this tremendously during the week. So here I'm looking at chapter 10. It's a big chapter. It's, it's 38 verses, and they're big verses. This chapter spans two full pages. Two full pages. And I'm looking at it going, is it too much to cover, to read that in one section? And it's, in fact, I thought about it so much and worried about it so much that, that I might be stressing our time restraints that I abbreviated it. Do you remember? Last week I abbreviated it to make it shorter, 
to make it more palatable, I guess, that full chapter, if you read the whole thing, and I read it and timed it, six and a half minutes, six and one half minutes to read the whole thing, and I felt like we had to abbreviate it. Is, is there something wrong with that? Is there a problem that's built into us because of that? Maybe it's just me. Maybe, maybe I'm just overly anxious about that. Maybe. I hope so. I hope that's all it is. Or is that really a challenge for us? Four minutes, uh, that's what I abbreviated it down to, can manage four minutes. But maybe not much more than that. How would we handle sunrise to noonday? What's our level of hunger and passion for this stuff? Do we have passion to endure? Do we have passion to make room? Like to make room. You know how you make room? You're going to move something else out. That's how you make room. Set aside some of the busyness of the world to make room for six and a half minutes? <laughs> How about 15 minutes? How about 30 minutes? How about 60 minutes? Is that insane for me to even ask for 60 minutes a day to be in God's Word? <sighs> I'm talking to myself here. I'm talking to myself here too. I think we need to allow ourselves to at least be challenged by that. Let's at least be challenged by that. Now, while this should challenge us, I also want to encourage you. This church, Aerosmith Baptist Church, I want to encourage you. For the most part, I have seen and, and I have experienced that Aerosmith is a church that values the Word of God. You do. I've seen it. And good. <laughs> good on you. So good on you. That's awesome. Keep going. And how about this? Go deeper. Even go deeper. And let it penetrate you even deeper and challenge you and change you. Because that's what will happen. If you dwell in the Word of God and you let it penetrate you, it will change you. It will challenge you. It just will. And then when that happens, then, then share it. Then share it. Don't just stop there. Then share it. There's a whole community of people out here that need it too. Then share it. And you know what will follow? Guarantee you. I guarantee you. What will follow is revival. Revival will follow. It, by God's order of things, it will happen. Well, that's my first big brushstroke. How about the second one? Let's go on to the second one. At this point in time, after this amazing month, these Israelites are led to publicly, you know, gather together as a community and establish this firm covenant, right? This, this binding agreement. And it's an agreement that calls them to live. Essentially, it's, it's pretty simple. It calls them to live according to the laws that God called them to live by. This isn't anything new. This is really a picking up of what was old and recommitting to it. That's really all it is, to live the way God's law has called them to live for quite some time, to live as God's people according to God's love and God's truth. 
not the world's program, right? But to be sort of separate from that and live according to God's program. It's an agreement to put God at the center of their community. That's what it is. God in the middle. And everything else aligned around the outsides. That's what it's really establishing. And not only to read the Word of God, not even only to know the Word of God, but to live by and obey the Word of God. And to be beautifully and hopefully, I, I want to stress that, because when you do that, it, it, it starts to beautifully and hopefully shape you and mold you, right? And distinguish you within the world. That's the nice thing about living by the Word of God. It's not just a bunch of painful, difficult restrictions. It beautifully and hopefully shapes us and distinguishes us as God's people. These people are making a commitment to reform. That's really what it's all about. They're making a commitment to revival. They're making a commitment to allow God to impact virtually every area of their lives. And this agreement, it, it really, if you look at the agreement, it touches on so many areas of common life. I, I, I'm, I'm impressed by this agreement and, and, and the things they choose to highlight here. Now, a lot of it highlights their faith practices, but even before it does that, it, there's, there's also implications to their domestic life, right? And who they will be united with in marriage and not united with in marriage. It covers that. And I, and I just want to really quickly emphasize that this isn't an arrogant or, or an ex ex exclusive or a racist sort of thing. It's not about that at all. You see, in those days, to, to, to intermarry between people groups and faith groups, it was a common thing because back then everyone was, was monothea or, or polytheistic. Their neighbors around them held all kinds of gods. So to marry into someone else's family and to adopt their god was like, yeah, go ahead, sure. It just adds another household god to us. Great, we got more. More's better, right? That's the way they thought. And that's what the Jews were being drawn into. And it was, it was diluting their, their devotion to the one true God. For, for, the other, for the other nations, it wasn't a problem. It's like, sure, we'll add this god to our stable, no problem. But... but God is asking Israel to be different in that, in terms of that. So it's, 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 it's not a uh, racist thing. It's a spiritual thing. That's what it is. It's a spiritual issue. It's a loyalty to God issue. The truth is, Israel was actually made up of people from all different ethnic backgrounds. And anybody could come and join the nation of Israel, provided they join in the faith of Israel and this commitment to this God of Israel the one true God of all, over all. That was part, that's what's at the core of this. Not any kind of a racist idea or attitude at all. So it, it covered their domestic life. It, it impacted their commercial life, you can see as well. And how tempting it is for a, a community of people to make bottom line decisions when it comes to the economics of their community, the commercial part of their community. So you know, let's trade seven days a week. That's what everybody else is doing around us. We might as well do it too. Oh, keep the Sabbath holy, eh, but we're losing money. We got to keep up with everybody else. So they make those, those compromises. And here there is this, this economic commitment to not live by the bottom line, but live by what glorifies God, right? And to set time aside for him, a day aside for him, that we're not going to pursue our business, but his business. 
right? They made a commitment to that. And then furthermore, not even just that, but it also impacts their, their agricultural life. They're going to, they're gonna, and for agricultural society, this is a huge deal for them to leave ground to lie fallow so that it can recover as well. And then also it impacts their, 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 their social structure and, and this idea of redeeming slaves and, 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 and uh, forgiving debts at a certain point of time. It's, it's revolutionary during this day and age. And that's what they do, though. They make commitments to all these areas of life. And it includes, of course, then, not, not just this domestic, commercial, agricultural, and social aspects of life, but also their faith aspects of life, right? They say that they're going to support the temple, right? Where all of these movements are also ultimately sort of run and managed from. They're going to support the temple with their tithes and with their contributions of, of energy and, and, and substance as well. They're going to support their priests and their Levites who are to lead them in these ways of God. They're going to support the feasts and the celebrations which teach them and keep them in the path of God. And they're going to pledge that that they would not, in the end, they sort of sum it up by saying, we will not neglect the house of God, right? They're going to make that a priority. That's what they're going to do. They're going to commit as a community of faith to make God and his work and his ministry amongst them a priority, a non-negotiable value is really what this is. They're establishing this as a non-negotiable value. And you know what I really like about this passage? What I really think is significant about this passage and what I would like very much for us to grasp a hold of, again, this is part of my big stroke here, my second big stroke, uh, is, that, is what actually happens right after this passage. So that's why I'm kind of connecting chapter 10 and 11 quite a bit together, and next time we get back to Nehemiah after Easter, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up again with some, a chunk of chapter 10 and into chapter 11. But if you have a Bible, look ahead and, and see what the heading, if your Bible has headings for the chapters, what the heading of chapter 11 is. In my Bible, the heading is the new residents of Jerusalem. That's where they're going next. Now they're going to bring in new residents of Jerusalem. That's right. In chapter 11, we begin to see new residents move into Jerusalem. The city now begins to populate, and it begins to grow, and it begins to prosper. Now, all the way back in chapter 7, we've got a slide for that. Back in chapter 7, when the walls were first completed, Nehemiah actually notes, he notes, and I quote, that the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. You see, Nehemiah recognizes that this is a problem. He recognizes that this is actually a weakness. And he recognizes that part of his mandate is not just to build the city, but to populate the city, right? This kingdom. And, and to see others move into it and become a part of it, that also needs to happen. But you see, as much as that needs to happen, as much as that is part of his mandate, something must happen first. Something else must happen first. Here's our broad brushstroke. First, the people who already are in the city, right, that core group that already occupies the city, they had to get their act together. That's what had to happen first before bringing others in. They had to become united under God. That was critical with God's core values at the core of their community. Then you can bring other people in. 
They needed to make some commitments. They needed to undergo some change. They needed to reestablish their faith and allow God to get them back on track, back on mission, if you will, and to function. They needed to become functional, spiritually functional. They needed to function and rediscover how to function passionately as a godly community. Because there's no sense in bringing new people into a dysfunctional community. There's no sense in bringing new people into a spiritual community that is spiritually dysfunctional, spiritually confused, spiritually divided, right? Or stale. That needs to be changed. So, what do we have to do with every passage? Every point? What about us? Bring it back to us, right? So what about us? And again, I'm speaking broadly. Church of Jesus Christ today, all over the place, all over the earth, God's kingdom on earth, we need to allow God to get our stuff together within the church. We need to become functionally and spiritually united under Him. We need to become passionate. We need to become passionate. We need to find that commitment that will touch all aspects of our lives. Right? With God at the core and all of the other things of life sort of ordered around God at the core. And you know how that looks in the church? You know what that looks like in the New Testament church? In one word. In one word. Summary. What does that look like in the New Testament church? Both Jesus and Paul give us that one-word summary. It looks like love, (laughs) right? That's what the functional church is supposed to look like. Love. More than anything else, it has to look like love. Our covenant is love. Our law is love. Our command is love. Those are all quotes out of the New Testament from Jesus and Paul. Passionate love functional love, commitment to love. A revival and a renewal of love. And when we can have functional love, right? When we can be revived in that, then all of those other practical things sort of come into place quite naturally. If we just love the way God calls us to, so many of the other things in life just find their appropriate place and order. Things like the wood for the altar that's covered in this agreement, you know, it'll happen. It'll be, people, will, people will line up to, to contribute if that love, the way God calls us to love, is there. That's the first things first sort of thing. When we're functional in Christ's love, Christ's church will grow and prosper. God's kingdom will expand and people will be saved. And that's important, isn't it? That's kind of what it's all about, isn't it? That's kind of the mission, isn't it? Jesus commanded us to love. He commanded us to love, his disciples to love. And then he said, by this, your love, all people will know that you are my disciples. And not only will they know that we're his disciples, they'll also be attracted to the kingdom of God. That's why it's important for them to see it. Not just so they can go, oh, I know that they're Christians because look at how they love each other. It's so that they go, I want to be a part of that. 
I need some of that. I got to get me that. <laughs> Help me find that too. Because we all need it. This world needs love. It just does so much of it. There's such a deficiency of it in so many ways. And we need to be the center, the core, the, 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 the mother lobe of love. We've got to obey and commit to that law of love. And what is that? Well, two things, right? The greatest command. First of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. We've got to love God. That's where it all starts. Firstly, commit to the love of God. To fall wholly and passionately in love with God. But how do you love God? How do you fall in love? You just experience His love. That's how. You let Him love you. You recognize how much He loves you. You, you tune into the, His love for us, and then suddenly we can't help but to love Him back. That's the way it works. It's, it's as easy as falling. <laughs> when they talk about falling in love, that's really what it is. You just sort of fall in it. <laughs> and when we experience the love of God, that's what happens. We just fall in love with Him. Oh, it takes any effort or skill. You just fall. It actually takes anti-skill to fall, right? That's all it is. Just fall in love with him because he loves us so much. And experience his love, his never-ending love, his unconditional love. And, and, and in experiencing his love, then we fall deeper and deeper into love with him. To the point that the love of God and our love for God, it touches and impacts and changes every single aspect of our lives domestic, commercial, social, and faith, right? I mean, you look at the Jews, they had so many laws, like there's 10 commandments, but then there's so many other laws. It's almost like Jesus recognizes that. And he says, tell you what, let's sum them all up. Let's think about love. Because <laughs> we're all about love. Do that and you'll fulfill the law, right? Let's just make it simpler. I like that. It's so much easier. And the second half of that law to love is, of course, to love one another, right? To love the world as he so loved the world. And, and if we grow in our love for God, oh my goodness, well, we won't be able to help but to love each other. Again, it will just happen as naturally as falling. It will just flow out of us. And then the world will notice. Our community around us will notice. Our neighbors will notice. Our guests amongst us, they'll notice. There's something different about these guys. They just like being here because they just care for each other so much. They love each other. And I think it just grossly hurts God when his church falters badly. In that. And sometimes it does. And they fail to love each other. And in fact, they hurt each other. They can even be mean and nasty to each other. And we failed in the, in the, in the most important thing in doing that. The most important command we fail if that happens, when that happens. And we just need to do better. We need to let God, we need to trust God to help us to do better. And again, just fall in love with him and these things won't be a problem. Then we will just fall in love with him, with him and, and others as well. At the, at the very end, there is this command to not neglect the temple of God, right? We will not neglect the temple of God. Let me take you to the New Testament. What's the temple of God, right? Us, yeah, us together. Is, is when when. If we translate that into the New Testament, is it this church? Don't neglect this church. Make sure we vacuum it. Make sure we repair it. Make sure we take care. That's the command. No. This is just the, the building that houses the church. We are the church. We 
are the temple of God. We must not neglect the temple of God. We must love each other and care for and sustain and help each other, build each other up. That's what it is to take care of the temple and not neglect the temple of God in the New Testament sense. We collectively are it, right? So let's not neglect the temple of God, one another. Amen? These are the signposts to revival. This is what will send us off in that direction of profound, God-centered spiritual revival, both amongst us and then beyond us. But it needs to start with us. It needs to start with us. We need to make that kind of a binding commitment to one another, to God and to one another, to live and commit to His Word and to love, to the obedience of His Word, which is primarily fulfilled in love. Amen? All right. Next week we get to celebrate God's greatest expression of love to us, right? In, in, in Christ's sacrifice. So we're, we're going to build off of that. We're going to build off of that. So let me pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your profound love for us. Thank you for your word that you cared so much to speak to us, to reach out to us. God, help us to absorb that and to recognize what an incredible thing it is that we have the very words of God and that we would just then communicate back to you and, and give ourselves to you and just be penetrated by your word and then changed and moved into that obedience that is focused around godly love in all areas of our lives, Lord, to you first and then to others secondly. Lord, in Jesus' name, help us to grow there and to thrive there that your very church might grow and thrive. In the name of Jesus, for his glory and for the salvation of souls, we pray this, we seek this. Amen. God bless you.